Hello to all of you, or should I say, low high. I don't know about high low, high to low, but I do know that what I'm going to share will bring those that are low to the place of being high in the right way. My name's David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. And I want to share with you that are new, particularly, how I'm about to share this message. I seek for God to lead me almost every day of the week to a particular passage of scripture, a chapter in the Bible. I do that by the casting of lots, mostly, where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth. Then I meditate on that chapter, including writing notes, which usually takes no more than a half an hour, and sometimes less. And then I share what God has been speaking through those chapters to me as an individual, to you as an individual, and to the body of Christ around the world. I don't do this lightly. If I'm not right with God, if I'm not walking in fellowship with God in a life that is holy and pure, that is repentant if there's been any sin, this doesn't work. In fact, it could be considered divination if people are doing it without a right relationship with God. But I do this seriously and with great desire for God to speak to me and to the body of Christ. So what I'm about to share here is not just something that is mere chance. As it says in one of the verses in Proverbs, the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And I'm not going to get into all the scriptural backing for this and how it was practiced by the Church of Israel before Christ and by the Church after Christ and in even very powerful movements of revival like the Moravians. Word of God commands us as believers in 1 Peter 4.12, I believe it is, says, if any man speak let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to speak to one another, allowing God to speak out through us. And if we have a deep, intimate, abiding relationship with God, we can know that experience of the Spirit of God rising out of us to touch one another deep in the core of our being. As Christ said, the words that I speak unto you our spirit and life. And so I will seek to speak prophetically, not, in other words, my own words, but the words coming out of the Spirit of God. So I want to share with you, first of all, the various chapters I received this week. February the 26th is today, at two th the year 2016, on Friday in the afternoon at about 1.18. So I will begin to share with you, first of all, the various chapters I received and make some brief commentary and message from those passages. And then I will go 
into a theme passage. I don't always know what will be the theme passage. I do not do any preparation here. I am trusting God to make alive his word, to rise up through me by the Spirit of God, to speak and minister to you as an individual, and to speak what God is seeking to say to the body of Christ for this week. So I will begin by sharing with you what I received on Monday. I received John chapter 3, which is a very familiar passage to many of you because it is about being born again of the Spirit of God. And I made some brief commentary, and we're very familiar with some of the parts in this passage. Um, and so we find that Christ is talking to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, who comes to him secretly. And Christ uh, responds to the rabbi. He says this, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might put in there, for see, perceive, in the original language. Except a man be born again, or brought forth again of the Spirit of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit of God. When Christ is talking about being born again, and except one is born again, he cannot perceive the kingdom of God. What he is saying is this, is that we have to be brought forth anew from the way we are in our natural state. So what does it mean to be brought forth anew? So that we are able to perceive the kingdom of God. This is explained in another part of John, and again, I'm not sure exactly where these verses are, but I'm going to try to flip to them. And I know it is mentioned in John chapter 1, and here it is. He says, beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And then he explains that those that genuinely believe on his name are as such with the following verse in 13. 
which were born not of blood, which were brought forth, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is he saying here? He is saying that people who, the, who are brought forth that are not of blood are not motivated by their identity in their family line. Their motivations are beyond the natural identities that people normally have. Oh, my parents, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of all the things that we represent in our family. That's what motivates me. And dare you dare insult my family name, I will come after you and take vengeance on you. No, we are not motivated by such natural things. Nor of the will of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh. We are not motivated by those things that will give us temporal gratification. We live beyond the natural realm in our motivations. In other words, we don't worry about people's opinion about us because it means that we might lose some money or that we might not be able to have this beautiful woman. No. We are brought forth beyond those things. Those things are not the core of our life, of our being, of our motivation, nor of the will of man. There are those that are motivated by wanting to please others, wanting to find identity in a strong leader, we see this on an individual basis, basis in people's lives. There are individuals that become obsessed with other people in their lives, whether it's a sports hero or a rock star. And that's where their identity is. They want all of their motivations are all around such things. Even this happens nationally to nations. Nations refuse the truth. They allow their institutions of education to be filled with lies that justify their own individual lives being their own God, that justify corporately a belief system that puts man in the place of God, which is humanism, another religion. And that's what the courts revealed in the United States. That humanism, which embraces atheism and many other things, um, is actually a religious belief system. And it's not based on scientific reality and facts. And that's another topic. Theory of evolution has been exposed as a mastery of deception by many highly qualified scientists in every field. And you can go and look at the top creationist sites on the internet to see the absolute deception of it all. People are willing to believe a lie and to be motivated by all of these things, the will of man, the will of the flesh, and their blood lineage. But those that receive, truly receive God, are those he gives the power 
to become the sons of God. Those that received him, it says here. But as many as received him, that's the word that became flesh. To them he gave the power to become the sons of God. And then it emphasizes what this involves. In, and then it says, to them that believe on his name. What does it mean to believe on the name of Elohim, the Almighty's one, on the name of Jesus Christ, who, within whom is God manifest fully in the flesh, and the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, because he is in the Father, and because he is in the Holy Spirit of God, that is in omnipresence as the Father and as the Son, and in the very personage known in the King James as the Holy Ghost. Okay, what does it mean to believe? The Greek word for believe is pistis. It basically means to have a full moral persuasion so that your life is dictated by that persuasion. Genuine heart belief that is not merely intellectual is evident in the way one lives their life. That reveals where their true persuasion is. One can easily say the sinner's prayer and say they're born again. But if it's merely a mental ascent and the motive is to become part of of a group of people that will provide them love and security and their identity is more in that than in a relationship with God, they are not truly morally persuaded in his name. And what does name mean? To believe on the name of Elohim, the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? To believe on the name of Jesus Christ means more than just the words. It means the very essence of the being of who God is. The word name in the Hebrew has a similar alignment with the word soul in Hebrew, the word Shem and the other word for soul I've forgotten at the moment. But I do know what the definition is in the Vines Dictionary in the Hebrew. The word soul at its core meaning means the reality of who you are in your being to yourself. The re very essence of who you are. That's what the word soul means. The word name means the expression of the reality of who you are outward to whoever it is. So to believe on the name of Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one true God, not three gods, one God, to believe on his name is to believe on the very essence of the reality of who God is. Yahweh is one of the names for God. It basically has the understanding of the self-existent one, the very source of reality. Another way that it was expressed in the Old Testament and the New is 
Christ said, I am that I am. In the Old Testament, God says, I am that I am. In Hebrew, it's ahiyah, asherah, ahiyah. It's basically saying, I am the very source of reality. And it is the quality of my being that makes me the very source of reality. And so to believe on the very being of God is to believe on his name as it is revealed to us or expressed to us. His name is the actual essence and reality of God expressed to creation if we so choose to open up to face that reality, which is revealed indirectly in the created realm as revealed in Romans chapter 1. I don't have time to go into that at this time. Believing on the name is to have a full moral persuasion in the very being of who God is that is, in fact, the very source of reality. And yes, I can go in to explaining what the very essence of the being of God is. I am not going to go into that in depth. I have a book that I'm writing that will be eventually coming out that is very in-depth on all of these things. But it basically starts by a choice that is a true choice from the heart, that involves a deep turning from the heart, it is a choice that is basically this, to fear God. That's not a negative fear. That's a positive fear. It is a positive fear to fear the law of gravity, to reverence it and respect it. If you didn't, you would end up, especially if you're in a situation where there's height of total destruction if you went over the edge. To fear God results in a genuine belief in the essence of who he is or a genuine moral persuasion in who he is. I just briefly want to explain this. The, the word of God says in 1 John, God is love more than once. And that word love is the word agape, which means it is more than just a mere emotional feeling. In essence, what love is, in the being of God is a total self-originating free choice that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment that would be less than the highest lasting good and thus implies that any such choice that would be less would have a measure of corruption in it so that it could not contain unlimited life and unlimited power because of the principle of corruption that would be in such choices. The love of God is always choosing the highest lasting good onto the highest good, which is God. Those choices are his expression in creation that bring creation into harmony with God so that God's love is ever enlarging. So what is the essence of a love that is so ultimately perfect and free, that can contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it or without dissipating it, instead rather causing it to ever enlarge in greater realms of creativity that result in greater realms of fulfillment and pleasure 
in a direction that is on to greater and greater meaning and purpose in life. That happens because of the very innate nature of this love. This love is firstly filled with such purity and such integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it, whether it be thought, deed, motive, or action. If this love was anything less, it would not be choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of fulfillment. That implies there's corruption in it. It is because this love is innate with such purity and integrity that there is no corruption. And when there is no principle of corruption in the being of God, he is the very source of government because he can contain unlimited life and power that can ever enlarge because there is no grounds for corruption, because it is judged, because God's love is like a consuming fire that burns the slightest thought, word, or deed that is contrary to love. Love being beyond a mere emotional state, but rather choice onto the highest lasting good. This is what is known as the holiness of God. It is the integrity of God's love. It is the defensive aspect of the being of God. Now, people may not intellectually grasp all of these things, and it's not necessary for them to intellectually grasp these things. What happens could be explained in detail. We all have a conscience, and I can only go into this a bit. What is the conscience? The conscience is that innate part of our being that is far beyond merely intellectual. It is part of our heart that innately knows what is good from what is bad. How is it that we can know what is good from what is bad? It is innate for us to know what is constructive onto life from what is the contrary. It is innate within a child. Now, if that child is influenced by people with false belief systems that have seared their conscience to be their own God and in independence from God, then that child's going to be putting their identity in their bloodline, like I mentioned, or in something else rather than in what is true and what is real, and that can blind and deaden the conscience. But the conscience, we all have a conscience, but with many that conscience has been seared by false belief systems that justify independence from God. And that's because of the fear of loss, which is a consciousness of loss, which is the emptiness within one's soul because they are cut off from God. Because only the being of God can satisfy the inner core of one's being. And as long as we are not in fellowship with God because of the fall of man through Adam and because of our own identity that is not in God, there is an emptiness within our being that is like a black hole in outer space that pulls everything into it in a destructive way. Our choices 
always are oriented towards self and they cause a hell around us and the people that we hurt because we're seeking not their good, their highest good, but our own. Not realizing that our own highest good is found in identity with God, which is love, and in choosing the highest good in all that we choose as unto God for those around us. But what I'm wanting to share here is this, is that this name of God, the first aspect is the holiness of God, the holiness of his love, the purity of his love. It is the foundation from which springs creativity that can ever enlarge from the being of God. It is the foundation for goodness, goodness being that which has no corruption in it. It is the foundation for wholeness out of which springs beauty. King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple all the days of my life. Yes. What happens is that we become offended at the consequences of the integrity of God's love that requires judgment. We see all the suffering in our own lives because of wrong choices we've made. We see all the suffering in the world because of man's rebellion against God, but we don't recognize it as man's. We, we say, oh God, why don't you just come and do this and do that? Well, he gave us free will. And if he didn't give us free will, we would be like machines. We would not have the capacity to love and to enter into a relationship with God. But God has called us as his people. to recognize who he is in his holiness. When we really face the reality, usually it comes because we've been trying to fill that emptiness in our soul and the consequences of our own ways and deceptions in that, in independence from God, result in greater and greater emptiness and greater and greater desperation. and therefore greater and greater destructive things happening in our lives or those around us, or both. But we come to the point, many of us like the prodigal son, where we finally realize there is nowhere to turn, that our life is hopeless, that we are smitten with how wrong we are so that our spirit can no longer worship our soul because we see how wrong our soul is. So we quit grasping on the self and we become open to truth and reality and we cry out like the prodigal son. We come to our senses and we say, wow, my life has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no fulfillment in the things that I thought would fulfill my life. And we cry out and we say, if there's a God, please show me. We become disgusted with all the deceptions of our own heart and the deceivers around us so that we desire nothing more than what is real and what is true. And so we begin to cry out for truth and for reality. And then God knows our heart is open and he reveals himself to us somehow, somewhere. And we begin to recognize, yeah, 
The source of reality is holy. It is a love that's so pure that requires judgment. It's a subconscious thing. You don't have to necessarily recognize it fully intellectually, although there's a measure of that that happens usually. And when we see that, we recognize we are guilty and that we shouldn't have been blaming God for all the suffering that he's allowing. That the reason God has required all of these requires judgment and there is the consequences of all these things is because of our rebellion. And so we begin to realize how unworthy we are of the mercy of God. But we also innately realize that since God is so holy, he is also good, for only holiness can contain wholeness and beauty and goodness, for it is the only foundation that is without corruption to contain it. So in recognizing that God is good because he is holy, we come to realize that he's also merciful and able to forgive. Now I could go into all the in-depth teachings on this that I have in my book and how the gospel was preached from the time of Adam and Eve till now. In fact, in Revelations 18, there is the angel that preaches in the last days what is called the everlasting gospel. It's not an individual. I'm just one of them preaching on the fear of God out of many. But it is this message that will be preached that is represented in this angel in Revelations chapter 18. And what is the angel preaching in Revelations 18 there? Not Revelations 18, pardon me, wrong chapter. Revelations chapter 14. It says, And I saw an angel come into the midst of heaven, proclaim, having the everlasting gospel to preach, saying, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him. Basically, and he goes on to describe what him as the creator. Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea, and, and it goes on. God is calling us as his people to recognize out of the fear of God, which recognizes the holiness of God and is open to it, which therein causes us to recognize not only that God is holy, but that he is merciful to forgive. Because when you recognize that God is holy, it should, if you're truly recognizing it the right way, without rebellion, you will recognize that God is the source of all goodness. And then you come to that place of realizing that from the time of Adam and Eve, God is, there's been one message. It has been that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness and mercy to all those that repent and receive his mercy. Adam and Eve, Abel took an innocent lamb, placed his hand upon it, representing his sin being transferred onto that innocent lamb. But he recognized that the animal wasn't the source of forgiveness, but that God was. Which implies that God has such a high moral quality of love 
that it is not only holy, but is transcendent to the point that God himself could come down and condescend and suffer more than you, the mere creature, and humble himself more than you, the mere creature, and absorb your sin and the sin of all creation upon him so that those that would choose to receive his mercy and repent could receive it and be cleansed of all their sins through the outpoured love of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, upon the cross, who is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I could tell you that even this everlasting gospel existed before the creation, for it was in the being of God. It says in Revelations 18 that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, which means he was slain before the world was created. For you and for me who come to the place of contrition and humility to choose to fear God, which is to choose to recognize, rightly recognize the being of God in first his holiness, which is the holiness of his love, and secondly, in his mercy, which is the grace or the mercy of his love. I'm not going to get into all the details on that. So, when it says that we are to believe on his name, it means to be fully persuaded that God is holy in his love and transcendent in mercy with the power to provide forgiveness because of his perfect atoning sacrifice in his being that existed before the world was created, not just as a capacity, but as a reality, so that in essence it did happen before the world was created, though it was played out, not just played out, but actually lived out in Jesus Christ in time and space. For those who don't understand the triunity of God, it's not some complicated, hard thing to understand. It is very clear in Scripture that there is one God, and that as the Father, he transcends time and space. He is the originator as the Father. The word Father means originator. It also means one that has experience over time. The Father is the originator and the one that transcends time and space and sees the end from the beginning in governance. The Son is the full expression of the Father into creation. He governs in the time and space realm. So he experiences responses, like for example, during the flood, he repented that he made man, because he's experiencing it in the time and space realm. It's not that he didn't know the end from the beginning. It is that God experiences governance in the time and space realm as his son. But as the father, he sees the end from the beginning and is the originator of all things. And as the Holy Spirit, he is in omnipresence filling all space. So you have the father in governance beyond time and space, the son in governance in time and space, and the Holy Spirit in governance filling all space. The three ultimate dimensions of existence. And if God was anything less than the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't be God. If he was anything less than personage, conscious, intelligent being, 
in those three ultimate dimensions, he would be less than God. There is only one God, and his name is Elohim, the Almighty's one. And he is revealed in, in, the, in his son, Jesus Christ. So when it says here that to become the sons of God involves believing on his name, it is initiated by choosing to fear God, which results in a response of moral persuasion in who God is, in his being, in holiness, in the ultimate negative, which is the holiness of God's being, and the ultimate plus, which is the grace or the mercy of God's being that springs out of the foundation of that negative symbol in the positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross. Did you know that the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the symbolic language that goes back to the symbol letters from 1500 BC and earlier is the symbol of the cross exactly as we have it today? And what does that letter mean? It means sign, symbol, signature. Pretty clear message of the gospel right from the very beginning of time, isn't there? The last letter of the alphabet. Yes, God is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. And he is beyond time and space. And so I want to go back to this passage in John chapter 3. And if that's as far as I get, that's fine. I don't know how things pan out when I begin to preach the word of God. But I want to share with you and continue with this. So now we've given an understanding of what it means to be born of the Spirit of God. It is like a seed. That seed has a hard shell. What does it take to break the state of self-worship and deception? Whether it's in self-righteousness or whether it's in an immoral lifestyle that's justified by such contrary belief systems. Either, both are equally as bad because they are an independent state from God that is holding us as a seed that has not been released into its purpose. It takes the water to melt the seed, which is the Spirit of God that begins to brood on someone when they come to a place of openness because of what? Because of the soil eroding that shell, which is the pressures of life that are cornering one to a place where they will come open to the truth if they have not been drawn to the truth out of their conscience and they've seared their conscience. And it also involves the light, which represents truth. And so they may hear this truth through the preaching of the word of God or just through the evidence of truth coming to them through things they're now beginning to observe. They're pointing them in the right direction to come to the place where they cry out unto God for mercy and receive his goodness. Once that happens and you see you're totally wrong in the light, in, in the, because you've chosen to fear God and to recognize his holiness and receive it, you recognize instead of being rebellious against the consequences of judgment, how guilty you are. And when you're guilty, your spirit can no longer worship 
your soul, which is the, your state of consciousness. So pride is broken, and that shell opens up, and the life of God comes in. Why? Because now you are morally persuaded in who God is, that he is ultimately trustworthy because he is holy, and out of that is good without corruption in the power to give you destiny and purpose. And if God was anything less, and if he created a creation that was anything less than able to be given destiny and purpose, it would imply he created what was imperfect, which would imply God is imperfect. So when you hear of belief systems that claim to be monotheistic, that claim to believe in one God, and they do not give you the assurance of destiny and purpose and goodness. You know it's counterfeit. And brings one into bondage. And the fruit is evident in the death that is emanating from such beliefs. Which started with Cain when he slew Abel because he refused to recognize the goodness of God out of his holiness and perceived God as a dictator. And so he felt that he had to perform an order to please and be accepted of this dictator. His perception of God was idolatrous because he was offended at the curse and of the consequences of the curse and became alienated in his heart. He began to perceive God as an enigma and as one far off, and he began to form a wrong image of God. And that is why his offering was rejected. And it's too much here to go into the archaeological findings from David Rowe that point to the city of Cain before the flood as being idolatrous. And that same city being discovered after the flood in the first city, which is Arudu. And from Arudu there was built by Nimrod, and this is all archaeologically sound findings, the Ur of Cal... Um, pardon me. Yeah, I, I believe it's called Ur. Yeah, Ur of Chaldees. And without going into the details, out of that city came a false god known as the moon god. And from that city, later on in history, it spread to Babylon where they had the moon god. And from there it spread to the Arabians, which had as their chief god around that stone that they marched at that time before Muhammad. 360 gods and the top god was the moon god, who was called the god, meaning Allah in their language. Later on when Muhammad came to power, he did renounce even that moon god, but they still continue this day to march around that rock which had the 360 gods with the top one being the moon god. So you figure from that. So what do we got here? Here in this passage in John chapter 3, pardon me, I just want to put something on here. In John chapter 3, he goes on to say here in verse 7, after he, he explains about being born of the Spirit, he says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one born of the Spirit. 
Christ expected the spiritual leaders before he died on the cross to know what being born of the Spirit of God meant. In other words, that there would be those that from the time of Adam that would experience radical conversion in their life from the way they once lived. Because being born again is a radical conversion. You're totally changed. That's why such a radical word as born again is being used. This would mean that they received the Holy Spirit of God in a life so changed from their previous natural motivations into selfless motivations and deeds beyond the natural, obviously under the leading of the Spirit of God. If one receives what Christ illustrated in natural things, now I, I'll share that part later. I was just reading a bit of, teeny bit of notes I made there. So in this description of the, the wind, what he is saying is this, is you can't tell where the wind comes or goes from, but you can see its effect on the trees. People can't understand why people are motivated beyond the mere natural motivations. They see it in their lives, that they're motivated differently, that their lives are different, that their lifestyle is different, that their choices are different. They see that, and they see that they make decisions that don't even make sense sometimes because they're being sensitive to God's Spirit and God's leading. He says those that are really born of the Spirit, this is the case with them. You see, when you reach out with moral persuasion and you believe on the name of God, the being of God, it is a reaching out out of the recognition of the very source of what is ultimately trustworthy in quality and state of being that is manifested in enablement to provide you mercy and destiny and forgiveness through perfect atoning sacrifice that is by nothing less than God himself. For a perfect atoning sacrifice was in the creature, then we would be worshiping the creature and giving glory to the creature. No, forgiveness only resides in God. And that is only possible in God because God can only be the one that could be a perfect substitute that could represent man's soul and spirit as well as the body. The animals could only represent the physical, so they could only cleanse the physical. That's too much to get into. I like going into all my explanations. But now is not the place to do that. All I'm wanting to say here is this, is that when you... We, open up from a closed fist of self-worship and self-righteousness or self-justified lifestyle of your own, of you being your own God, whatever that belief system is, when you open up and surrender to the truth because your pride is broken, it's like an open hand being put into the hand of God's mercy. So it's like two open hands coming together and forming two hands of prayer. Now both hands cannot, now the, your hand can't close because it's open and it's being held open by the other hand that's open, which is God's hand, forming these hands of prayer. This is a state of the Spirit of God dwelling with your 
soul in a state of selfless trust. When you see you're totally wrong, you cannot worship your soul anymore, and you see that God is your source. Your identity is in God. And now the Spirit of God is dwelling in that selfless state of trust. The Word of God says that boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Because when you have trust in what is ultimately trustworthy and beyond yourself, there is no grounds for self-worship. And that is held there by the indwelling of the Spirit of God in a new nature, which is described in 1 John, where it says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith is a state of selfless trust that is held in that state by the indwelling of the Spirit of God with our spirit in a new nature. Now, our identity is in God. Now, I've shared a lot in that passage of Scripture on John 3, but I felt that probably the theme chapter would have been John chapter 5. Now, Christ goes on before I leave John chapter 3, and he says this to Nicodemus, Art thou, in verse 10, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? What Christ is saying here is that I've given you an understanding of a spiritual reality by illustrating it in the wind blowing on the tree. Now, if you are not open to that and understanding that, how much less you would be if I didn't use such natural things to draw the illustration of what I am trying to point to you. Now we go on to John chapter 5. I am not going to, this is the theme chapter, but I'm not going to do the whole passage. And I want to point out before I get on, because I spent a lot of time on John chapter 3, I want to show you the theme that is coming forth that God is saying to the body of Christ this week. Because John chapter 5 is also about the similar theme. And so is Galatians chapter 4 that I received on Wednesday. And so is Jeremiah 23 that I received on Thursday. And today I'm preaching on Friday. Now if I preached all these passages, I would probably be preaching for three or four hours. But I want to go to Galatians chapter 4 now. And I just want to point out a few things. Let God speak by his spirit to the body of Christ in Galatians chapter 4. Turning to Galatians chapter 4 in the scriptures. Going there now. And we read. Now, well, pardon me, I did, did, well, maybe God's leading me there first. So I'll go to Galatians 4. I meant to do John 5 first, but that's okay. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, 
made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Notice we're talking about the adoption of sons. We already were talking about those that were given authority to become the sons of God. And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor and bread vain. And he goes on, and I, I'm going to leave it at that part there. One purpose of the law was for Israel as a nation and as individuals that were not spiritually mature. It was to restrict their ability to carry out sin so that they would not become cancerous with sin to the degree that it was out of control to their total destruction. That is one of the purposes of the law. Remember, that before the law came, you have Abraham. You have people like Enoch walking in such a close relationship of fellowship with God that they are translated by the Spirit of God without physical death. You have Abraham in a close, intimate relationship with God. And it says, because he believed God had this moral persuasion in who God is. It's exactly the same in the Hebrew. I have all the notes on it. It's not his moral persuasion in what God did for him. It was his moral persuasion in the very being of who God is. That was counted unto him for righteousness. He was convinced in the goodness of God and the mercy of God. It says in the Psalms, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Why? Because he believes on the mercy of God like King David, who committed terrible sin, but he believed in the goodness and the mercy of God. And he received mercy, and he received forgiveness. Though your skins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Whosoever shall call upon the name, the name, the being of who God is. Call upon the being of the reality of who God is. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, the Almighty's one. I am that I am, shall be saved. And here we see this, which you could call a basic principle of restriction, in this case being used with a law, that corners and that was particularly for nation, Israel as a nation. That, but it's a basic principle, and this basic principle of restriction does corner towards righteousness and protects from s sin. It applies 
to all people and groups of people, and also today, including those that are born of the Holy Spirit. The basic principle here that is mentioned here in Galatians chapter 4. You see, when we do things that are in disobedience to God, whether we're born again of the Spirit or not born again of the Spirit, there are natural destructive consequences. And those destructive consequences have a restrictive or cornering effect. In fact, Paul the Apostle discusses this principle of restriction in the book of Acts. When he's talking to the Athenians that didn't know God and had a monument to what was no, what they called the unknown God. At least they were hungry and seeking for truth and reality. Paul says to them that God, who from the beginning of time foreknew the boundaries of the nations and so constricted them that they might be cornered to seek God. God is foreknown all things as the Father. He knows your own self-originating free choices even before you make them. And that doesn't violate your self-originating free choice. And so, as individuals, we make choices because of the effects upon our nature from Adam and from our parents that have been in rebellion against God that cause consequences that are restrictive in our lives. But those restrictions are like the womb in a woman. And the more, the pre the more we are in those situations, the more we begin to recognize our own wrong ways. And so as a spiritually, in a sense, we grow. But then there's the greater pressure of restriction from well, the restriction we're in, which is the womb. Eventually, there comes a crisis where one is forced out of the womb. The question is whether it's going to be a stillbirth or that when you come out of the womb, you're going to breathe in the life of God into a whole new realm that is beyond the restrictive realm that you've been in. This is true of the nations. Some nations experience far greater oppression and restriction than others. But the purpose of it is that eventually people like the prodigal son will come to know God and turn to God. And so it is that some nations will experience restriction and it will come to a point where their oppression through dictators and so on eventually brings people to so turn to God that the dictatorship is overthrown and they come in to freedom as a nation and also that's because individually and corporately people have been coming into a relationship with God so that they can be entrusted with greater freedom. So there is this basic principle that is described here in the book of Galatians. It doesn't mean that when people had the law that there was not a remnant that had an intimate loving relationship with God. There always has been. There were many in the nation of Israel that were a remnant, that were born again of the Spirit of God. 
But as a nation, Israel was not. They were under the bondage of the law. Joshua had a close relationship with God. Moses had, and there were those that prophesied in the camp. They were all under, under the restriction as a nation of various laws. But there were those that did not focus on the Ten Commandments becoming an idol and their source of identity. They had a relationship with God, and out of that relationship they found grace and delight in obeying God. Because they had entered into the genuine fear of God that brought genuine rebirth. And I can't go in for time and explain all of this, but Christ made it clear. In John 14, he said, Ye know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Before Christ died on the cross and our soul and spirit was able to be cleansed from uncleanness, the Spirit of God could still dwell with us in that state where our faith was held open in a new nature by the dwelling of the Spirit of God with us so that we knew God. Don't have time to go into it now. But what I'm wanting to point out here is the principle of restriction. It even happens after we are born again of the Spirit. Because there are things that happen in our lives because of our own, a part of our being that has not been purified by God. You see, the Word of God says that as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And it is in the way that we receive Christ, recognizing our undoneness in the light of His holiness, and crying out in for His mercy, and receiving his, recognizing the greatness of His love out of His mercy that came out of the fear of God. That we respond in faith, and our faith continues to grow. And that's a whole nother realm of a lot of, lot of teaching. But what I'm sharing here is that even after we are born again of the Spirit, we can go through periods of time of great t testing and trial, and often it's because of our own ways that God is seeking to undo that, and that have been used to bring those very restrictions upon us. But as we seek to put God first, to abide in Him, through prayer, through learning to wait on him and know that he is God and be still and know that he's God, meditating on his word, we will come to breakthroughs, into greater and greater conversions, into greater and greater realms of being the sons of God that are led by the Spirit of God instead of the natural realm. And the more we die to the world, the more we enter life and liberty. Now, as we go on, I do have uh, some more that I want to share here on Galatians 4. Our choices result in consequences of reaping good and bad. I'm just reading the notes now on verses 8 to 10. And the bad restricts us towards being born again of the Spirit. And if born again, towards greater conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with God comes out of genuine heart recognition of the goodness of God and grace and mercy towards us. That we came to, to realize, that we came to realize 
we were unworthy out of recognize the, recognizing the integrity of God's love and required judgment upon us. This is a reciprocal, ongoing relationship of free will response to the goodness of God that is not based upon performance. But moral persuasion in the ultimate trustworthiness of God is ultimately good without corruption. That's all I'm just pointing out. Now, I can go on here, and I need, I really feel it's important that I touch on all the verses that I received. And obviously, I didn't get to preach in John chapter 5. But I feel next to just go quickly to what I received yesterday, because it's getting near an hour of preaching, or it's probably over an hour now. Uh, and I received Jeremiah 23. Now, I'm not going to turn to Jeremiah 23. I'm just going to point out some of the things that God was saying in Jeremiah 23. Maybe it would be good to read a few verses in Jeremiah 23. It's fast for me to turn there, so I'll just go over to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 1. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Now, I'm not going to be reading the whole passage here for time. But this passage goes on. It's a prophetic passage of the last days. And it describes in the next verse, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. Wow. Do you see that these people were born again of the Spirit because they were broken from their own self-righteousness into recognizing God as the source of their righteousness? Because they re became re re reciprocative to the being of who God is. To receive cleansing and forgiveness and His grace that imparts a life of fellowship that leads to the fruit of righteousness. And he goes on to say this, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they will no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. We are living in the last days. When these things are about to happen, yes, the word pastors, in the Hebrew, I looked it up, it's raw, no, raw, to tend a flock, to pasture it. In the symbol letters, it's the symbol of the head and the symbol of the eye, which is the symbol of top priority, what is first, in knowing. 
The pastors are those that are to know the sheep and make them their priority. And that's what the root meaning of the word pastor is in the symbol letters. It also is the letter, root letter for the letter friend. But if we do not have a genuine relationship of friendship with God because we've not been born of the Spirit, we are going to seek our own interests and justify it in, our, in keeping the law and the Ten Commandments, but in our heart, there will not be the love. There will not be the desire to love those sheep and to know them in such a way that we will lay down our life for them. And in this passage, that's what the word pastor means. And we, as we go on, there's also more that the Lord says, beginning in verse 28. And he says this, because the problem was that there was adultery in the land, and God reproves Israel for their spiritual adultery and their adultery with their wives. And particularly the prophets were guilty of committing adultery, the false prophets. And he goes on, and he says this, the prophet, he's talking about the false prophets, the prophet that has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer, that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words every one from his neighbor. Behold, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. God's word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And it is like wheat compared to chaff. The chaff is blown by the winds of identity in the natural realm. Whether it be your identity and your self-righteous religious belief system or your immoral belief system. Whether it's your identity in your the pride of your family or the desire to have identity in a leader more than a relationship with God, which many Christians have in the leader of their church more than in their relationship with God. And many of them have not even been genuinely born again of the Spirit of God. The word of God will break the hardness of pride like a hammer. It will burn the dross of the chap and bring one into a relationship of holiness. And the word of God says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Now, I want to at least touch on John chapter 5 in closing. And I just want to point this out. I can't read John chapter 5 for time. The Pharisees were very religious in their verses 1 to 16. I summed this up. And it was about the lame man who was healed. And the Pharisees were saying, How dare you heal this lame man on the Sabbath? The Pharisees were very religious in their own righteousness to point to the point that they were totally blind to the miracle that had been done on the lame man. And they didn't search their hearts before God. 
as to if it was righteous to do good on the Sabbath day. They were already set in their little performance thing that made them not only in their own sight acceptable in a false idolatrous concept of God, but as those that could control others and they love to control others through religious performance like themselves. And then we go to verse 17 and 15, and I will read that part of John chapter 5. So we will turn to John chapter 5, verses 17 and 15, towards the end of this message. Going to John chapter 5, verses 17 to 15. And we read, But Jesus answered, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. I got that kind of mixed up there. I was supposed to start in verse 15. Sorry about that. Oh no. Okay, don't worry about it. I just, I just wrote something down wrong. Okay, so we go on and we read here. about what the Lord was doing. And I typed down the wrong verses here, so I got a little bit of a mix-up. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. So I'm continuing to verse 19. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. The Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may, may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. For all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, that's the Father, hath everlasting life. Remember, we already went through this. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. God the Father and God the Son are in, perfect, in a perfect bond of love that makes them one in all they seek to do to glorify each other as Elohim, the Almighty's one. When we are open to hear the word of the Son and morally persuaded to entrust our life into God, the Father, we receive the everlasting life that is in the Father and in the Son so that we will never die. This happens because the genuine fear of God is a heart choice to enter into the right perception of who God is in the holiness of his love that requires judgment in order to be pure, without corruption, in order to be good and forever enlarged. In recognizing his goodness, this goodness of God, we recognize it would also contain God's mercy that we can receive and then do receive. Now that's not anything new, but it adds to what I'm saying and confirms it. But the part I really wanted to just bring out in the end is verses 16, uh, and I hope I have this right, but it, I'm going to spot it any. I know it's around verse 27. This is the part I want to read. Um, 
It says in verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. I want to explain the understanding of what it means when it says that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, because here it's making it plain that because Jesus is the Son of Man is why he is given authority to execute judgment. The Father has given the Son authority to judge the world because the Son is the Son of Man, which means the Son is the full, genuine representation of how God created man to be, which means he is in, humanity, in a humanity of perfection, and anything less would not be the full expression of man as God created man to be. In other words, Christ is the full perfect expression of man. You see, the word son means expression. So he's saying the expression of man. Man cannot be genuinely expressed as man if there's corruption. Christ had no corruption. Therefore, he was the genuine full expression of what God created man to be. And therefore represented man. And only as such, in perfection of man, in the flesh, could he have the grounds to judge the whole world. If he was not perfect in the flesh as man, that, fully that was the full expression of who God created man to be, he would not be able to judge for that would imply that there was corruption in him, which would give him no ground or basis to judge all human beings. And so we need to be those that allow in our lives, our lives, to be brought into conformity to Jesus Christ, to the likeness of his death, to fully express our humanity to the world in perfection, in a life of holiness, by learning to be brought forth fully of the Spirit of God through every restrictive trial. Until we experience breakthrough, until we enter into the place where we are perfect and entire, wanting nothing, as it says in James. We are to labor to enter the rest for there is a rest for the people of God, and he that has ceased from his own self-initiated works and independence from God, in whatever measure they are, even after we are born again of the Spirit, enters in to that rest as God did from his. May we be those that represent the glory of God and bear much fruit in his name. Thank you for listening to this message.